You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Last week, a couple of us got up here to share a little bit of a brief mission report on our trip to Bangladesh. And as they say, some things that happen in Bangladesh have to stay in Bangladesh. But uh, one story I wanted to share was something that happened during one of our last days, and it's already up on the screen. Uh, As we were finishing up our trip, towards the end of our trip, we were driving to a village. And as we were driving into the village, this was unlike anything we had seen on the trip. And quickly, I wanted to know what we were getting ourselves into and what kind of village we were trekking ourselves into. And so I turned to the translator, and I began to ask him, where, where, where the heck are we? And uh, he continued to talk a little bit about where we were. He said that we were in a gypsy village. And he continued to talk uh, a bit. And then he said something that caught my attention. He said, this is a snake charmer village. Uh, This is the kind of village where they make snakes dance and so forth. And so that immediately stuck with me. I thought in my heart, I really want to see this. And so we got out of the bus and uh, quickly it seemed like everybody on the team had forgotten except for me. And I kept it on my heart, in front of my mind, and soon enough, I met with a translator, and we found the ringleader of the village, and rounded everybody up, and the show was ready to begin. And on the screen, as you'll see, uh, this man had these little wooden boxes, and out of these wooden boxes came these king cobras. Uh, These are big snakes, scary snakes, and immediately I recognized I don't like snakes either. Immediately I recognized, this guy seems a bit clumsy. What have I gotten myself into? What have I gotten our team into? And sure enough, he starts beckoning to us. He starts making uh, gestures to us that he would like one of us to be a volunteer. And immediately, uh, within just a few seconds, I saw that this guy was not a very good snake handler. Within just about 10 seconds, these snakes were just lunging at us. And so uh, soon enough, I uh, essentially said, no thanks, and he grabs this little child in the village and starts putting these snakes on this kid. And as you can imagine, we were all terrified. What is this lunatic doing with these snakes on this kid? Now everybody's gasping, there's quite a bit of excitement, and everybody's laughing, and everybody's safe, but it just simply reminded me that I do not like snakes. Now, I mentioned all of this this morning because we are in the famous passage in the Bible where we meet the snake, the serpent who tempts the first man and the first woman to sin in the garden. We'll see the original sin this morning, the fall of man. And yet, in light of that, we'll also see the mercy of God, the grace of God who meets us in love who clothes us in his own righteousness and promises that one day he'll crush the head of the serpent. And so that's really the big idea of where we're going this morning. It's pretty simple and it's up on the screen and it's this. God is 
a great Savior. God is a great Savior. Said another way, getting the right socioeconomic conditions or the right psychological state isn't ultimately what heals us. There's something deeper in each and every one of us that needs God's rescue, that needs God's touch. And God himself in Jesus Christ meets our need this morning, the one who graciously comes to our rescue in our plight. My line's going to be up on the screen, and it's also pretty straightforward this morning. And it's this, number one, the beginning of sin. That is how it starts. Genesis 3, 1 through 6, the impact of sin, that is what it does. We'll see that in verses 7 and 8. And then finally, the antidote for sin. That is where we find a solution for sin, the thing that dwells in each and every one of our hearts. The chapter begins like this. It really leads us to our first point, the beginning of sin. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So the man is there, and he's been doing God's will. He's been naming the animals, and we read in chapter 2 how he couldn't find a suitable companion. So poof, all of a sudden, God puts a woman in the garden. The moral of the story there, I guess, is that if you keep naming the animals, if you keep naming the animals and doing God's will, uh, he will bring you a spouse. They're in this garden. It's a picture of harmony and peace. Everything is chill. They're minding their own business. And all of a sudden, this little snake, this serpent, shows up. Now, we know who this is. This is the devil or Satan. We don't know how he got there. We don't know why he's allowed there. We don't know how he's working through this serpent. That's not the point. But he's here. Verse 1. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So the serpent starts, and he starts by asking a question, a question that seems a bit like an innocent question, except the motive is bad. This is not an innocent question. He already knows what God has said. God said, you can eat anything. You can have at it. You can have everything except don't eat the fruit from that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he's getting ready to trip her up. And she responds, verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But then notice the serpent pivots hard, doesn't he? Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, the snake comes on the scene, and he says, God is lying to you. He says, actually, if you don't listen to him, you'll be better. You'll see better. You'll reach the next level. You'll finally be great. And the result is they bite on this. They sin, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit 
and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, strictly speaking, sin, the definition of sin, is breaking God's law. 1 John 1 literally says sin is the transgression of the law. And this is exactly what happened. God said, don't eat from the fruit, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they ate. But as we meet Jesus in the New Testament, he seems to imply, in fact, explicitly say that sin comes from the heart, the motives of the heart, the desires of the heart, the posture of the heart. Out of these, we sin. We act out of what is in our hearts. And what's in our hearts this morning isn't always pure. The lie of the serpent has been passed down to every human heart. Deep in the core of who we are, we have learned from the serpent, haven't we? Number one, we've learned to not trust God. The serpent says you cannot trust the love of God. You cannot trust the wisdom of God for your life. Following him for real is going to hold you back from opportunities. If you actually listen to him, you're going to miss out on your life. If you really submit to God, you're going to be a weaker, naive human being. The serpent says the truth of it all is you are on your own. You have to take life into your own hands. And as a result, we've learned deep down inside to not trust God, to in the depths of our heart not believe He has our best interest in mind, to deeply within us believe that He is not going to give us the things we want most in this life, to believe deep within us we have to negotiate with Him, that we have to have some type of special relationship with Him, that we have to deal with Him because He doesn't have our best interests at heart. We believe so deeply, so often, that we're on our own, that we have to take life into our own hands. And this is simply how sin begins. It begins in the heart, with no trust towards our Creator. Instead of trusting God and His great love for us, instead of trusting His great wisdom over the world, at the core, we're not sure. The serpent's lie is in all of our hearts. And number two, we've learned from the serpent to make it all about us, haven't we? The serpent says, be like God. That's the solution to life. You'll finally be happy when you put yourself at the center of existence. Make everything orbit around your glory, your worth, your achievements. You are the master of your fate. You are the captain of your soul. The serpent says... Put yourself in the place that only God should be. You decide what's right for you. You are your own Savior. You are the Lord of your life. And we buy this so often, don't we? We've learned to be me-centered through and through, to deeply within us believe that life is all about us, to use everything and anything, whether that's God or religion, included to make ourselves look good. It's called selfishness, and it's at the core of all of our hearts. And this is how sin begins. It begins in the heart. 
with a loss of trust towards God and an enticement towards self-centeredness. We buy the lie. We listen to our own desires even when we know they're off and we follow them because we think we're God and it will satisfy. We listen to the voice of the tempter who plays up the love of God and minimizes the holiness of God and we bite. We've learned from the serpent. His lie has been passed down to each and every one of our hearts which really leads us to the second point this morning, the impact of sin, what it does. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, just like the serpent said, and they knew they were naked. They felt exposed. They felt embarrassed. Verse 7, And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They're trying to cover up. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. The Hebrew there is literally in the wind of the day. It's referring to the presence of God. Think the book of Job where God shows up in a whirlwind. Or the book of Acts when a rushing wind appears and the Spirit speaks. Verse 8, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. In other words, they know what they've done, and now they're hiding in the trees. They don't want to face God. Now notice two things. First, these fig leaves. When they sin, they immediately know they're naked. This is a way of saying they feel shame. Their innocence is gone. They feel embarrassed about what they did. They don't want anyone to have an unmediated knowledge of who they really are. Vulnerability is not a good idea anymore. They need to control what people see about them. They don't want to be fully known because honestly, it's not great. They feel exposed. And notice as well, they've lost their identity. They used to be defined by God's love for them, but now there's a disruption. And so they take things into their own hands and they patch up a righteousness of their own. They patch up an identity of their own. They cover themselves with these fig leaves. Now notice, this is the same pattern for us this morning. We live in a world where we feel the impact of sin. We live in a world where we often feel exposed, where we feel like we've lost our identity where we've convinced ourselves that vulnerability is not a good idea, that we need to control what people see and know about us, where we don't want to be fully known because we know, honestly, we're not that great. And we follow the same pattern, don't we? We're not that intuitive. Nothing is new under the sun. We take things into our own hands. And just like them, we cover ourselves with fig leaves, the fig leaves of work and image and pride and boasting. It's an attempt to build an identity, to build a cover. Why? Because it's so hard to do transparency. It's so hard to do self-giving. It's hard to let anyone see fully inside of us because the hard truth this morning is we're not that great. We're beautiful, but we're beautifully broken. Now, that all might work for a while, but then you might just encounter God 
in the cool of day, when his voice and his presence comes to you. And just like in the garden, we hide, which is the second thing I wanted to point out. These trees, notice they hide in the trees. They hear God and they hide. Essentially, they're hiding because they feel guilt. They don't want to feel any more guilt. Now, the best way to describe this is if you build your identity on being a very pretty person and someone more prettier comes and stands next to you, it's crushing. If you build your identity on being a very competent person and someone who's way better at the job comes and stands by you at the party, it's crushing. If you build your identity on being a very smart person and someone who's way smarter than you in the room, it is crushing. That's a little bit of what it's like to get near to God. It's crushing. We see who we really are and we see who he really is. Isaiah catches a glimpse of God and he says in Isaiah 6, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The holiness and the power and the beauty and the reverence of God wrecks him when he actually meets God. It undoes him and it can undo us. It can wreck us. It can crush us. The guilt of our sin that's blotted our record and stained our souls. The realization that we haven't lived up to God's standards or even our own standards. And the weight of the serpent's lie that lives on in each and every one of our hearts that tells us that God is not to be trusted. That he's not worthy of our time, of our attention, of our worship when we know that's not true. Sin doesn't die in the garden. Its impact goes on and on and on to the present day. It wreaks havoc on us. It alienates us from ourselves. It alienates us from others. And it alienates us from God. But thanks be to God this morning that he's filled with compassion. He's filled with grace. His heart beats with mercy because he doesn't leave us here which really leads us to our final point that we see in this story this morning, the antidote for sin. The antidote for sin. Verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Notice how gentle our God is here. He comes as a shepherd. He comes as the wonderful counselor. He knows where he is. He's saying, why are you hiding from me? The answer should be, because I sinned against you. But verse 10, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So God says, why are you hiding? He should say, Adam, because I sinned. But he says, because I'm ashamed. So God says, why are you ashamed? Have you eaten of the tree? Verse 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And again, the simple answer should have been yes. It's pretty simple, but that's not the answer he gives. Notice verse 12. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Notice God is being gentle. He's not coming in fiery condemnation or judgment. He's trying to ask questions that will help the man and the woman 
to see it, to see what they did so that they can be led in, in repentance. They can experience his grace. Verse 14, notice he turns to the serpent and he shares the consequence. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And after he gives the consequences to the man and to the woman, just before he sends them out, verse 21 says, God's mercy is still beating. His heart is not done with them. Verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now this morning, the good news of the gospel is that God's mercy is still beating. He is not done with us yet. And though this passage doesn't explain it all in detail, it's all there in seed form. The character of our God. The grace of our God. Notice first that God covers them with these animal skins. Through a sacrifice, God covers their shame. This is no doubt a preview of the gospel. The main message of the Bible. The good news that God is not finished with us yet. The good news is that though we all struggle with shame, though we all struggle with controlling how people see us, though we all struggle with being known, God comes and He covers us up with the sacrifice of His Son. He clothes us with a righteousness that's real, that's more permanent than any fig leaves could ever give us. He gives us an identity, a new identity as His sons and daughters that isn't achieved by following rules or becoming the authentic you, but comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he comes and he clothes us with his very righteousness, the very righteousness that allows us to be fully known and fully loved because we're forgiven, because we're cleansed, because he loves us. There's nothing that can separate us from His love. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Isaiah will later say, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, as a bride adorns herself with jewels." God hasn't left us in our shame. He's come and He's clothed us with His righteousness, with His kindness, with His love in Jesus Christ. And number two, notice that in God's consequence to the serpent, the Lord makes a very strange promise here. He says that a descendant or the very seed of Eve would one day come and that descendant would be bruised he would shed his blood, but in doing so, he'll crush the head of the serpent. Now, what's fascinating about this is that if you really want to understand the gospel, if you really want to understand the message of the Bible, this is it in a nutshell. It's here in seed form that Jesus Christ comes to undo the work of the devil. First John verse First uh, John 3, verse 8 says this, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
The evil one put a lie in our hearts through a tree, but Jesus is going to take the lie out of our hearts through another tree. This is the gospel. The first Adam in the garden was told by God, obey me about the tree, and he didn't. But the second Adam, Jesus Christ, in the garden of Gethsemane was told by God, obey me about the tree, and all will live. The first Adam was told, obey me about the tree and you'll live, and he didn't do it. But the second Adam, Jesus Christ, was told, obey me about the cross, and I will crush you into the dust. But it's the only way to end the hiding. It's the only way to end the shame. It's the only way to take the punishment for their guilt. In sin, we try to take the place of God. We try to put ourselves in the center We make it all about us. We say we're the captain of our souls, the master of our fate. We try to get what God deserves. But in salvation, God takes our place and my place, and he gets what we deserve. In sin, we put ourselves in God's place. But in salvation, God puts himself in our place. This is the gospel that though the lie of the serpent is in all of our hearts, that we struggle to trust God, that we often fall into selfishness, using others and God for whatever we can, for our own glory, our own identity, though we struggle to know who we really are, and we build fig leaves to cover ourselves, though we are guilty, Jesus Christ is God's answer. He's come into the world to take the lie of the serpent out of our hearts, And where we failed to trust God, Jesus succeeds. Where we're ignorant and selfless, selfish, I should say, Jesus shows us the way. He shows us his selflessness. So we struggle to know who we are, Jesus clothes us with his righteousness. And though we're guilty, Jesus comes and he dies in our place. And in his body on the cross, he receives, he absorbs in himself our full penalty for our sin. He turns that cross into a tree of life. This is the gospel, the antidote for sin. It's the only way we can ever stop hiding, the only way we can ever really face ourselves, the only thing that will ever make us new. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.